what could we all achieve if we believed change was possible? If we knew that the solutions were within our own communities and that those solutions could receive support and resources, we could change the world. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, and social artists, people who feel deeply and create on behalf of the human future. And our guest today is Dr. Kinnery Webb. Uh, she is the founder of Health in Harmony, an international nonprofit dedicated to reversing global heating, understanding that the rainforests are essential for the survival of humanity, and a co-founder of Alam Sehat Lestari, ASRI. Dr. Webb graduated from Yale University School of Medicine with honors and currently divides her time between Indonesia and the United States. Health and Harmony's mission is to recognize the inextricable link between human and environmental health and focus on providing healthcare as an incentive to protect natural resources. While studying orangutans in Gunung Palung National Park in Borneo in 1993, Kinnery Webb saw both devastating threats to the rainforest and the deplorable lack of health care in the local communities living in the park. After completing her medical training, she returned and spent a year traveling around the country looking for ways to help reduce the damage to the rainforest and to the villagers who lived within it. Today, the clinic she founded provides affordable health care for the communities of Gunung Palung and has not just improved the lives of the residents, but also introduced alternative income sources and dramatically reduced illegal logging in the rainforest. Dr. Webb was honored as an Ashoka Social Entrepreneur Fellow in 2014 and with the Rainier Arnold Fellow through the Mulago Foundation in the same year. And now here's my conversation with Kenry Webb. Welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right. As you well know, the hours late, the unraveling of the webs of life and the fragile webs of community where mutuality and reciprocity mean health and the fear and the self-centeredness, all of this promises to doom us. And you do amazing work in restoring rainforests through radical listening to what people there say they need rather than what the experts from the global north impose. And you are a woman who also has the courage to deeply listen within to your dreams, to your own health crises, to your entrenched beliefs that are holding a sword of Damocles over your own head. So our listeners, sometimes we call them the walking worried, um, who know enough to get our predicament and yet who struggle to see clearly and act courageously in the murky present. And we need what you have found within and in your work, something that you might call sober hope or actionable hope or gritty hope or hope on the other side of platitudes and nostrums. And with that set up, you can use it as a springboard or ignore it. I am eager to hear your answer to our one question. In the face of all that seems to be going awry, what could possibly go right? 
Whew. That one question like kind of encapsulates my life. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just feel like I, I felt like I had spent most of my life very worried. I'm still very worried. I mean, mm. I think if we are not looking, if we're not worried, we're not really looking at the situation. Because we are in an emergency. It is a crisis. We are unintentionally and but very consciously destroying our planet, destroying the systems that keep us alive, destroying beauty, destroying love. Like, why are we doing that? I, I, I don't really know. And yet I know that a lot of it is based on some really fundamental errors, colonialism, racism, elitism, a belief that there is endless extraction is possible, endless growth is possible. All of those are, are fundamental fallacies. They're belief structures. But as soon as we dive into them, very quickly we can see that that's not truth. So when I first went to Borneo to study orangutans as an undergraduate, I first had those first beginning moments of, whoa, I don't see the world at all the way it is. I'm in this beautiful forest. It's like, you know, <laughs> Jane Goodall says, you, you can't spend time in the forest and not know how interconnected everything is. That's what it is. You know, boy, you feel it in your bones. You just know, I mean, and in your skin and in your, there's everything crawling all over you. And, you know, you, we are all interconnected. And I can hear the chainsaws in the distance. What is wrong with these evil people? Why can they not see how amazing this forest is? Why can they not see how important it is for the health of the whole planet, for the health of the orangutans, for their own health? And then I begin to talk to these men, you know, well, why are you doing this? What is wrong with you? And to have them say that healthcare was one of the primary drivers. And as I've begun to really understand the world over so many years, why did these communities have so few resources? Of course, because they were stolen from them for thousands of years, right? literally from the actual communities where I was working. And so there they are, the, you know, one man I know cutting down 60 giant rainforest trees to pay for a C-section. A woman recently telling me, if anyone tells you they haven't logged to pay for healthcare, they're lying to you because there's no other way to get an entire year's income. And I just really began to know my own luck in life, luck, sort of luck. I mean, you know, like I was born in the richest country in the world. I have light skin. I could go to medical school if I wanted to. Ibu Ati, this wonderful woman that I knew, she was the wife of, um, of one of our, of Jono, who was one of our field assistants in the forest. I know, knew very, very well. Ibu Ati was so smart, but 
she'd had horrible education, right? The capacity for her to go to medical school was just zilch. It didn't matter that she was passionate about the health of her community. I mean, enough money to go to medical school? Impossible, right? Enough, you know, just even basic reading and writing was a real effort given the education she'd received. And so I began to think, okay, I, I could actually do this. But I did it with this fundamental understanding that outsiders are never going to understand the full situation. When I say to people that people, that people in communities, all, now I understand, all over the tropics, all over the global south, are having to trade their long-term well-being for their short-term well-being. And in fact, that happens in this country, right? That happens all over the world. When people are in that situation, they know that they're making choices that are not going to benefit our future. We all do it. I just had a C-section a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. My family would have done whatever it took to get that for me. And I would have been grateful for it. And I wouldn't have wanted that to mean destroying the future. But for these communities, that's often what ends up happening. So that's like kind of where we are in some ways. So what could be better, right? So we did this process I call radical listening. After I finished medical school, we went back. I teamed up with all these amazing Indonesians and we, especially my, my co-founder, Hatla Nampusungu, and we just listened. We listened to all the communities around the park. What would you need as a thank you from the world community for protecting this precious resource? I see this as reciprocity. It's, um, you know, it's an indigenous concept. It's an alternative to a capitalist way of seeing the world. We all have something to give. And when you give gifts to each other, mutual gifts, those gifts are bigger on each side. They just keep getting bigger. It's actually a beautiful way to run the world. <laughs> so I said, what would you need as a thank you from the world so that you can guard this precious rainforest and you can thrive? They said healthcare access, which I knew because I've been talking to these communities for a long time. And then they said they needed organic farming training. I'm like what? This just was, seemed like the strangest thing. But they said, look, our traditional form of agriculture, which is slash and burn, it was working well when there was lots of forest and not many people. It doesn't work anymore. We heard other places know how to do that, how they can grow food in one place sustainably in a way that's healthy for them for a long time that doesn't cost a huge amount of money. How do we do that? So the experts are on the next door island of Java with a many thousand year tradition of sustainable agriculture. Just bring them over. So this radical listening process, we've been doing it all over the world now. Communities know exactly what the solutions are. I call it like the fulcrums of change. I will come into these communities and think, oh, there's so many problems. How could we possibly address all these problems, right? But they don't see it that way. They're like, if these two things change, everything else would be better. Or these three things, right? And we, we, we sit in a circle, we ask this question, and then we just wait for those kind of magic resonance moments. Those moments where everyone leans forward, where everyone goes, yes, look, we have that, we change everything. I mean, if that were possible. So 
healthcare that you could pay for with seedlings, healthcare you could pay for with manure or beautiful handicrafts. You could get discounts for protecting forest. It worked. Alternative livelihoods that would make your life better every year, that would make the soil better every year, more fertile, not less, where you didn't have to log to get the startup money for the chemical fertilizers, right? All of those things were intimately interconnected in a way that I as an outsider could never see. So we did it 10 years later, 90% drop in logging households, a stabilization of the loss of the primary forest, 52,000 acres of rainforest grew back. They saved $65 million worth of carbon compared to other national parks in Indonesia. If you compared the sort of difference in the loss of forests. So that's like, you know, uh, the world over those 10 years gave a pretty big gift. It was $5.2 million. So it was a pretty big gift. $2 million of that went to building a medical center that hopefully should last the next hundred years, right? But you know, there was a lot of, you know, we provided healthcare to 120,000 people. There was all kinds of sustainable agriculture training. There was goats for widows, get more manure in the communities. There was a lot of stuff, right? It was a beautiful gift that the world gave. But what these communities gave back was a much, much bigger gift. And I, for me, it's very important that we not think about these forests in terms of monetary means, even though I said that, right? I want, and that's just valuing one tiny part of the forest, which is the carbon. But what about all, and it's not a small amount of carbon, right? Like this forest where I first started has the same amount of carbon as 14 years of carbon emissions from San Francisco. So it's, it's not small, right? It matters what these communities do, really matters on a global scale, but it's not just the carbon. It's the flying rivers. It's the way that these forests create rain halfway around the planet. I usually live in California, although I'm visiting Virginia right now. And in California, there's a horrible drought, right? And part of that drought, you never talk about it, but it is so important to understand. It's from the loss of the, of the forest in the Amazon, but also from the loss of the forest in the Congo Basin and also from even Southeast Asia. Like these, these flying rivers go all over the planet. Mm. And we need, to under, we need to see the world as one beautiful ecosystem that needs all its parts, but it really needs its rainforest. These are absolutely essential ecosystems. If we lose them, it doesn't matter if we go to 100% alternative energies. We must have thriving rainforest. We need to reverse the loss of forest. We're now working in Brazil. They're the indigenous and traditional communities there. They, it's, it's different there. They're the, those communities are really protecting from the invaders who are trying to come in and cut the forest, right? And it's complicated because those invaders often are doing it also for very basic needs, right? And some of them aren't, but you know, yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's complicated. But 
goes, like we're working in a region right now that's the size of the UK. And there are about 20,000 people there who are protecting this forest with everything they got. And sometimes if they need healthcare access, maybe making a deal with a logging company, but they really don't want to do that. And if they can mm-hmm. get healthcare access and they can get their support and they can get their thank you from the world, they can really protect the forest. Those 20,000 people are some of the most important people on the planet, right? Like if we lose that forest, it, could, it would mean going over the tipping point where eventually the whole Amazon goes to Savannah because there isn't enough rain being created by the forest to feed the rest of the forest. So I just feel like the whole world needs to say thank you to these communities, right? In that, in our first site, there was a 67% drop in infant mortality in that first, in that first 10 years. And there was across the board improvements in health, total declines in TB, malaria, uh, pneumonia, all these different kinds of diarrheal disease. Some of that was because of healthcare access. Some of that's because the forest is now protected. And some of that is because they have better food. Some of that is because they're not exposed to a lot of chemicals anymore, right? Like all of these things go together, creating resilient communities. That, that whole study that I cited was done by Stanford and they just did another study with us looking at um, looking at the resilience during COVID of these communities. Less logging than other areas. We did con- compared with control areas. Also less, uh, they had more economic resources. They sort of weathered this real difficult uh, economic period for the whole world better. And I just feel like This is something that we can do everywhere in the world. We can create resilient communities with thriving ecosystems. And this is going to sound weird, but it's about hope, right? Like I don't even, I'm not sure that what we did mattered. It might be how we did it. Everywhere we work, in Madagascar, in Brazil, every time any one of our staff members is in the communities, people are coming up to us and saying, God, thank you for listening. We have worked with organizations for many years and none of them listen to us. People just come in and they think they know what the solutions are and you're just wrong. Or even if they were right, even if they implemented the same thing that the community said they wanted, it's different when the community themselves says, these are the solutions. Then they feel like, look at what we did. We knew exactly the right solutions. They were implemented through reciprocity, not through charity. We gave something to the world we received something in gratitude. Mm. That's a very different relationship. And give us the next problem. Like we are, we can take on anything. Right. One community leader, he says to me, we are the pathfinders for where the world needs to go to how to live in balance Mm. with our earth. 
And now we want to teach the world. Mm. And that's what I feel like. It's what, what could we all achieve if we believed change was possible? If we knew that the solutions were within our own communities and that those solutions could receive support and resources, we could rock it. We could change, we could change the world. We could heal our ecosystems. We could heal, we could provide healthcare to the whole world. We could have much greater equality. We could thrive. I mean, that's really what I, and I didn't believe that until I saw it with my own eyes. Mm. I saw it change. And, I, and not just in Indonesia, we're now seeing it in Madagascar. And people told us, man, if you could be successful in Madagascar, <laughs> it's going to work anywhere in the world. Because Madagascar is poor, poor in a way I have never been anywhere else in the world. Poor where one family in an entire community might have a pair of shoes, not even flip-flops. No one in an entire region owns even a bicycle. No electricity. Like there are not that many places in the world that are that poor. And they're losing 90% of their forest. It's heartbreaking. And yet we are seeing that reverse. And we are seeing communities say, look at us. We're not afraid of the hunger season anymore. Look at how healthy we are. Look, our children are in school. Right, like that. And now, now we really, already it looks like, I'm collecting more data at the moment, but it looks <laughs> like the forest loss is really stopping. And the communities um, are trying to come at it from lots of other different directions. They're now saying to us like, okay, now we got to deal with the charcoal problem. Right, like okay, now we dealt with the like most emergency things. Now, okay, now let's deal with the charcoal farm. And I just feel like more is possible than we possibly mm -hmm. know when we stop this horrible colonialist attitude that outsiders know what the solutions are, that folks from the global north who went to school, like whatever that means, know the solutions rather than those who are closest to the problem. And when we treat it as though outsiders like own these forests, they don't. Local communities own them. Local communities have something beautiful that they can give the world. And we can give them gratitude in return. Yeah. Uh, I am sure everybody listening to this or watching it is like super inspired. and. You know, I'm hearing some keys and then, so I'm going to name some of the keys that I, I heard from you um, being a nice Western mind and like extracting from the beautiful story a few like <laughs> intellectual points that we can like replicate, you know, in studies Yay. in the North. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I mean, number one is this 
idea of radical listening, of not presuming that you are coming in with answers, but you're coming in in a spirit of respect Mm -hmm. and that, you know, not just sort of like deigning to listen, but understanding that, that the people most affected um, are the best ones to solve the problems. I'm thinking of, of um, in another guest we've had, Carolyn Raffensperger, who's been like a, you know, like a spokesperson for this idea of um, subsidiarity, you know, that, that we've turned the pyramid upside down. So we've given, you know, the tiny number of people at the top of the pyramid of, of financial and educational resources, the power to like bestow <laughs> downward, you know, our great knowledge. Yeah. So radical listening. And then this idea of mutual gifting that, you know, I'm thinking of that project that was just, does it, is it called give money, you know, or it's just the project that said, wait a second, we do not need all the intermediaries, you know, all the people who are Harvard educated or kind of like making big salaries in order to figure out what people need. They just need the money. <laughs> so, and trust them. They're not stupid. They, they'll, they'll do what's needed. Very few squander the money. So that one, and then the empowerment, you know, it's like, I, the, through this process, this feeling I have something to give makes such a huge difference. Now, here's my question. I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, people in the red states who are so resistant to, you know, the coastal elites, <laughs> you know, the coastal elites, you know, who, who swoop in and have these big ideas. And people say, like, why are people voting against their interest? Well, maybe their interest is in dignity. Maybe their interest yes. is in community. You know, one of the things I've observed over the last two years is that, you know, the people are, who are focused on freedom and sovereignty have better parties. They have better barbecues. <laughs> You know, they have, you know, I'm saying barbecue to maybe barbecue, you know, mushrooms <laughs> because I'm talking to a <laughs> vegan. But, you know, it's like the social glue, the relationship with, you know, their creator, the um, the fact that they have survived in that place for a long time and don't tell me how to do it. Now, some of the practices are recognized by the elites as, you know, I mean, because part of what the elites develop is long-term thinking, you know, systems thinking. Um, But until there's some humility and listening, it's like, there's also this assumption that if people are are treating their environment that way, you know, for example, like mining coal, you know, it's obvious that there's a limited amount of coal that that industry is going to disappear when it's been mined. But it's like cutting the trees to afford health care. We have desperate needs in this country. Yes. This country, my country, the United States, because um, not everybody listening is in this country. Um, what would that look like? How would you go about that? I, I have actually desperately been wanting to go do radical listening with coal miners in West Virginia. 
<laughs> I picked it off your mind. <laughs> yes. Because I think it's a very, very similar problem, right? Like if you could have a gift, if you could take a magic wand and have something different, what would you want? And I would, I'm just, I would be so surprised if people said, we really just want to be coal miners for the rest of our lives. We want our lungs to be destroyed. We want, you know, our children to then go work in the coal mines. Like I am certain it's not what they want. But what they do want is well-being, right? Mm. And they want to be able to feed their families and they want to have work that's meaningful and they want, right? And so, so what, what would be the solution? And not as outsiders to come in and say it's this, right? What do you see as the solutions? And I bet they have them. Yeah, and, and it, yeah, it feels as a kind of just comment there. It just feels like one of the things that you do is you sort of listen through the top layer. Like, yes, we want the government off our backs. Yes. You know, we don't want to be told what to do. Um, we don't want your handouts. We want to continue what we're doing. I mean, I think that would be the top layer because as you know, from your personal health crises, the top layer is get me out of here, you know, get me out of this pain, you know, get me out of this like death sentence. So the first layer is get me out of here. It's almost like the first aid. Yeah. So we can't like, like drive yeah. through the need for dignity. Yeah. To get them to cough up any of us to cough up answers. It's, it's a way deeper process. So is that the radical listening just stays with it until that magic moment when bing, we hear it? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. So I, I did listening with a group of loggers uh, in one of the communities where we work, where the loggers were, this was, I would say, one of the most resistant communities. There was the highest level of logging and they were and it was, they were shifting slower. So we went to have a specific meeting with these, these folks. And um, in the beginning of the meeting, there was a lot of distrust and a lot of anger. And um, one of the guys just starts, looks at me. You know, normally we have, uh, we're always an insider. I call an insider, a local who is, who speaks the local language paired with an outsider. And sometimes that outsider can be useful as a lightning rod for some issues. And also as someone who like you need, the whole group needs to explain things to them. And that can sometimes help them understand it. So he says to me, how dare you come in here and tell us that we can't log anymore? This is our forest and you have no right to say that. And I, we weren't saying that first of all, right? But, but we were asking, would, you know, would there be solutions so that you could live and thrive and so that the forest could also thrive? And he, and so I, you know, I was thinking, okay, how am I going to respond? But before I could even respond, another guy speaks up and he says, look, you know, these people from Asri is the Indonesian name of our group. You know, Asri, they are so helpful. They really care about us. That's not what's going on here. Look, have we have seen in our own lifetime how the edge of the forest has been receding? How much longer do you think it is before it's all gone? 
it's going to probably at the most be 10 years. And then what? Then what are we going to do? Then we're going to all have to change our work anyway, but all the forests will be gone and there won't be any water. And he says, they're just trying to find solutions so that we change now while there's still forest. We're going to have to change. Mm. It's just a question of when. Mm. And the guy looks at him and he's like, yeah, I know, you're right. And then they all just like got down to like really trying to find solutions. So it was, it's really interesting. I've seen that in multiple places around the world too. In Madagascar, a man who said, our ancestors said they would be forest until hens have teeth. And now we know that's not true. There is, we're going to lose all our forest. We're going to have to do something. And I would say that is on a global level. If you really, people are beginning to see that it is not endless. And they, and it, it is, I think it's much more powerful when local communities right. themselves facilitate that discussion. Right. It's like a readiness. And, and so you, perhaps the first layer of listening is dealing with the suspicion and perhaps the community isn't ready because they still, it's still working for them. So there's this somehow sweet spot, which I, I think we are in, you know, yes, or bitter spot, if you will. You know, there's yeah. a bitter spot. Um, it reminds me, I years ago when the spotted owl um, crisis came um, and I was learning about um, the listening project that was a project in the South where they just went and listened to people. So a friend of mine and I got our tent and we went out to Forks to do a listening project, you know, not because anybody authorized us or told us or whatever. And, you know, I mean, you heard some of the, I mean, number one, there was a, there was a logger museum. They wanted to show how beautiful their work was. There was, we are the guardians of the forest. We know what's going on there. Um, there was the promise to young people that if you just go into the forest, you know, you'll have money for life and that's not working and it's defending their youth. Um, and so it was like a challenge to my own mind. Like, mm -hmm. why are they doing it wrong to them? It's not wrong. And they're not willfully, they're mm -hmm. not willfully doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. It's tradition. Yeah. Um, and then we met a woman who um, had discovered that the um, shoots of new growth, these like branches came up all curly and red. And she was going into the clear cuts and harvesting these and selling them to florist shops and has a thriving business. So, you know, the system itself was self-correcting. You know, I'm not sure we, you know, we didn't do it long enough. We didn't have the impact that your group has. But it was a big lesson in being a know-it-all. Yeah. And um, I, and it's I really a... think this is like so key. And any of us can undertake. I mean, I live in a community that is, that's just a, a, a target of developers 
you know, we're weakened by the pandemic, you know, our, our housing is going for like twice or three times what it did, you know, mm. I mean, our, our workers are leaving the island, they can't, they can't find a place to rent, it's all Airbnbs now, you know, so it's like, a, it's like a perfect stew. And then an outside developer bought one of our main shopping plazas to turn it into self-storage. And now the community is rising up. <laughs> and, you know, the story is just unfolding now, right now. Um, and we have no idea how it will turn out. Um, but I, I really hear what you're saying. It's not a strategy. You have to really deeply get that it's a question that the intelligence that's needed to solve the problem is distributed in the whole community. And it's not you that's coming in who's going to have the smart idea. And, you know, that's been the story of my life, being the person who comes in with the smart idea. So, <laughs> you know, but I am also a deep listener and I also love, I love my community and I really honor the intelligences that are in all elements in my community. So I, I just, and we talk about resilient communities. That's the, that's the, the, the theme of post-carbon Institute. Yeah. But we're so worried that the more worried you get, the more afraid you get, the more you try to exercise control. And that's another thing in your book is that when you've had health crises, you've gotten to the moment of surrender, not in order to survive, but just, you know, that's what this assault on your body was teaching you. And that's one of the hardest things to do when you're, when you're threatened. I just like, I would like to invite you to have some reflections because I think we should be winding this up and, and, um, and not do like a Joe Rogan three hour interview, you know? Um, yeah. Just like some reflections on, on this, with this audience in mind, mostly largely people from the global north, you know, very concerned, but not knowing what, where to put their aura, in, what to, how to, how to address this, where they, where they can make even a tiny difference. So we actually offer a free monthly webinar on radical listening that one of my amazing colleagues, Ling Tio, teaches. And like the first level of that is teaching about interbeing, right? This idea that we are all interconnected, we are all one. We feel like that's like the fundamental layer that has to be in place for truly listening. And so we invite you, come join that, see how radical listening may be part of your own work, your own life, your own communities. And then, of course, like being part of this work uh, in sending gratitude, we're trying to figure out ways to actually scale this throughout the whole tropics so that resources could go directly to communities. That they could then, if they needed healthcare, say, you know, pay a nonprofit to come and do that and provide that if they wanted, or, you know, that, that it would be. They, they are the ones in control. They determine the solutions. They make those solutions possible with the resources from, the, from those who have enough. Mm -hmm. Recognizing there is enough for us all to thrive, but only when we all thrive. Mm 
right? That it is actually the belief in not enough that creates the scarcity. So yeah, we're Rainforest Exchange is actually the beta of the app that we're developing to um, be able to connect people all over the world directly to rainforest communities and send your gratitude to them. So check it out. Mm, 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 mm. Wow. I'm hearing that. And um, I'm wondering if aid workers from the global South might come to help us restore our yes. sense of interbeing oh, and oh, to yes. restore our sense of gratitude. And in a way we have those, the, those folks in our midst and we call them marginalized, yeah. you know, people who have survived and found strategies for survival. Yes. In the midst of um, a very toxic environment. Yes. Um, and so that's another thing is rather than that mentality of helping or saving or including, <laughs> you know, that whole mentality, it's, it's to say it's the, the wisdom we way. need to solve the problems we have are, is distributed in our communities. Yeah. And particularly indigenous communities, right? Following that wisdom and communities who have lived in ecosystems for tens of thousands of years in balance. Yeah. That is the knowledge that we need. This is like, I mean, we need worship at the feet of people who, can, who know this, right? Like, how do we do this, right? And right. it's very specific in different ecosystems, but right. yeah. Oh my, thank you so much for this inspiring Nikki, thank you. Thank you for all the work you have done in the world. I have been following your work for <laughs> 40 years, 30 years, long time. <laughs> A very long time. And <laughs> <laughs> right. loved it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Well, and the other thing you said, I'm just going to pop in one more thing. The other thing, the other key that you discovered was that if you put women in charge, you're going to you're going to tend to get better results, you know, and talk about a marginalized population in the Western world, even though right now it doesn't seems it seems women are empowered. You're a woman. I'm a woman. You know, we are empowered. But I just think that's, you know, so here we are a mutual admiration <laughs> to women who've given our all through thick and thin and crisis and such um, to heal the world. So thank you so and much. And heal ourselves because that's where it all starts. Exactly. Well, the final <laughs> wise word. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.